Miracy. My style of where exact where are you coming from? Here's exactly where I'm coming from. Here's who I am. And except for certain types of people, if you come in there and you're constantly offering up who you are, taking a risk to do so, it's hard to resist for the other side to offer up who they are. I'm Sharon Richmond, and this is To Lead as Human. For more than 30 years, I've run a business called Leading Large. I help C-level executives expand their impact, clarify their priorities, energize their organizations, and build cultures of accountability and respect. In this podcast, we help you envision how to supercharge your leadership by introducing you to leaders who lead with intention. I speak with top business leaders who exemplify the principles of leading large. They know that as leaders, the influence they have comes with an equal measure of responsibility. These leaders not only deliver stellar value to their customers, clients, and key stakeholders, they prioritize building organizations that provide purpose, meaning, and a healthy environment for their employees. We learn from the challenges and successes they've experienced on their human journey. My guest today is Joel Jewett. Joel is a serial entrepreneur who's been on the founding team of at least four Silicon Valley companies, including Good Technology and Palm Computing, which some of you may remember as producing the first handheld consumer computing device. I owned a Palm Pilot way back in the day, and it was an amazing leap forward in personal computing. I've known Joel since we went to business school together in the mid-1980s and got to know him much better when he helped my team launch the Wall Street Journal-acclaimed Leadership Fellows and Leadership Labs programs at Stanford Business School. Joel and I will talk about how his leadership focus changed as he gained experience in the startup world. We'll also talk about some of the challenges he faced both early on in his career and more recently as a public company executive. Joel is the master of metaphors, so listen carefully for a few powerful metaphors he brings up. The you are here symbol, having a leadership engine inside yourself, how business is a game like poker. Joel's had quite the Silicon Valley leadership journey, and I'm grateful he'll take us through this journey. Welcome to the show, Joel. I'm so glad to see you and so grateful for your joining us today. Thanks, Sharon. I'm super excited to have this conversation. Yay. So perhaps you could get us started by just introducing yourself, telling our listeners a little bit about your current company and the roles you've had there. Sure. Um, I am a uh, longtime denizen of Silicon Valley. Um, My career has been um, working with several companies from inception to growth to sale. My current company is called LiveRamp. We're public on the New York Stock Exchange hundreds of millions of dollars in revenue, actually Republic, around $600 million in revenue a year. And what my company does is work with marketers to help them do digital marketing that's data informed. So they send the right advertisements to the right people and measure well. My roles in this company have been from the very beginning, I was the business department. Actually, LiveRamp is a combination of two companies, Axiom and LiveRamp. LiveRamp is as a startup. Axiom is decades old. In the kind of live ramp thread, I was the entire business department when I started. Um, and as we grew, 
I became more of a specialist in large partnerships. And today I am called vice president of strategic operations. I focus on complex ecosystems of partners and in particular, uh, uh, building partnerships that may have a lot of components to them. And then also if something changes in a partnership and there needs to be some sort of subtle management, I'll come in and get involved to make sure it's resolved well for both sides. That's great. Thank you. So I'm going to invite you to kick us off by just briefly describing what's your approach to leadership and what are the guiding principles that you follow as you think about leading? My approach starts with a you are here on the map. Any situation has several contexts from the exact context happening right now in this room, talking to a person or being in a meeting, a large meeting where something needs to happen to the next level of context. Where does that fit into a bigger picture? Where does it fit? Where does it fit? And so I come to things from first principles. That's just how my brain works, where I can do a you are here. So if we think about, say, and this might not be a principle, but we can keep pushing me on this, but um, you are here might be the name of my principle. I want to know for every person, what is a precise way to describe for them and for the situation? You are here. You are here in this meeting. What exactly does it mean for you in all your contexts, your day today? What part of your day was it? The project we're doing, what part of the project is it? You know, your contextual people you're representing, where do you fit there? And I pride myself in being very capable in a simple way, giving a you are here statement to people in any situation. And you'll find, for example, in meetings, a lot of times there's people coming from a lot of different places and there's several different sort of meeting threads happening. Mm -hmm. And so you can have a whole discussion where there's like three or four worlds interacting and then you don't get an optimal outcome because it wasn't clear what was going on. And I'll often speak first in meetings um, because I have that talent of like, we are here. This is what it is. Mm -hmm. And so one big thing of leading, especially in this, these messy, complex tech environments now, where people are afraid to say they don't know, and you'll have layers of surfing of people kind of getting it and then moving along. And so if you just go, hey, we sell software. Okay. And our software costs $100. All right. And we have a customer just going through the basics. Mm -hmm. It just refreshes people, even if they know it, to hear it again and say it together. So um, I'd say that's one of my big principles in my particular world, which is constantly changing and moving and complicated, just like you are here and being a leader to be able to say you are here in a very clear, incisive way is such a service to everyone. So I like this leadership principle of kind of making sure we're all aware of what we're doing, why we're here, what we're trying to accomplish. That is great. So I've got this in my mind now, that little Google red thing that says you are here. Yes, it's now yes, sitting yes, right yes. in front of my mind. Yes, and so yes, where we yes. are today, you and I, is we're going to dig deep into your own leadership journey. And I thought what we could do is take a closer look at how you 
reflecting back over the arc of your career, how your leadership showed up in different stages. And if it's okay, it's kind of like a game. So I'll say the company that you were at, and then you just kind of think about, well, what was your leadership like there? What did you learn in that role and at that stage? How does that sound? Sure. Does it sound That's fun? That's good, Sharon. Okay. Yes. Let's have some fun with this. I'm so, ready. so after business school was Palm, and I know there you were part of the founding team as well. What do you remember learning about yourself as a leader and what worked from the early days through the life cycle, or at least the time that you were there? Sure. At Palm, I discovered I was a business developer and not a marketer per se. And so you can think about Silicon Valley, there's many metaphors, but one is the movie business where the company you're building is the movie you're putting on. And so a movie needs a director, it needs a lead actor, it needs a, you know, whatever, best boy, all these different parts and pieces. And the people come together and make the movie, movie gets made, and then they go off and do whatever project. If the project goes well, they get to make it on a bigger movie, but they have decided, you know, what they are. I'm a, I'm an actor, I'm a director. Of course, there's those famous lines. I'm mm-hmm. an actor, but I always, I always wanted to be a director. But um, <laughs> as far as the money that puts in the money to make the movie, they're looking for people that know what they're doing. Okay, so in Silicon Valley, it's similar. You know, what are you? I'm assembling this company. I need the CEO. I need the this and that. And when I joined Palm in uh, uh, 92, I came in as the director of marketing. And so the idea was I was going to care about, you know, a bunch of things having to do with, I don't know, advertising, the color of the spread, you know, the, the sheets, the language in the one sheeters. These are like one, you know, page documents about what's going on. And yeah. I got involved. I got in these meetings that the first thing we did at Palm was um, we did a partnership with Casio and Radio Shack. <laughs> Casio was going to build the device. Radio Shack was going to sell the device. So I wrote the biz- first business plan for Palm. And then I got involved in managing this partnership of Casio and Radio Shack. And I would go into meetings with people who, as the director of marketing, who are expecting me to care about and have something to say about the marketing side. And I would go and listen. I'd go, I don't care what color the thing is. I don't, and people would laugh. I, had, I was laughed at. But, and I was like, so I would kind of laughed at, but politely, then I would walk on and go, what just happened there? I'm not feeling this marketing kind of mantle. I don't, I'm excited about it. I don't care about it, but I'm liking this whole, how are we going to stitch together this partnership with Casio and Radio Shack to build and sell the product and the personalities. And that's where I, I had this, I, I, I found that I had a knack in that and so I said, I'm going to call myself business development. So I told the guys, look, I'm going to call myself business development because that seems more like what this is. That's what I'm doing. And so that was kind of the external part of the journey. What was happening inside of you in terms of what you were learning about yourself and how you think about other people and how you think about bringing them into alignment or helping them develop new skills? What, what, what was happening inside you? I would say that was, I, I have blossomed a bit more about being concerned with other folks' development and what their path is. What I was doing at this point was imprinting 
a pure Silicon Valley situation. Founder, amazing founder with an incredible vision comes to play, money comes in, you bring in the actors, then you put it into the market, you build it, you promote it, you do what you need to do so it gets in the market. And for consumer things, you sell millions of them and now you've made the impact you want. I was feeling it all. I was seeing what the founder does. I was seeing what the engineers do. We were living in the Merrill Pickard Anderson office for quite a while. I I was feeling what the venture people do. And so I was doing the path that I now help young people with. Um, And there's, 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 it's not, Silicon Valley has famously, maybe they're getting better, been bad at management, bad at training programs, bad at structure, bad at kind of internal process because the ethos and the mythology is founders with world-changing idea, moving fast, more like a movie, bringing in the parts and pieces and going. And so I was learning to feel what that is and going through being good at partnerships. So so we're gonna have to flip this around to leading, but uh, it's poker hands. How many hands have you played and how big are the games you've played in? And so I was introduced very quickly into a game where a lot was at stake. This Casio Railer Shacking was the company making deal and, and A-level Silicon Valley venture capitalists had put money in. And so if that hadn't worked well, that would have been a failure. Yeah. And so I was playing with the stakes of company making stakes. Now we had, you know, it wasn't just me at all. You know, Jeff was the leader and then a gal named Donna Dubinsky came in, who's mm. another like fairly famous Silicon Valley person. Um, but um, I was learning how to handle myself in situations where there's a lot at stake. So I think I was learning more about being with outside executives versus in this particular case, particularly developing someone's career. It was Mm -hmm. more collegial for me. Um, It was more a collegial plus external. Yep. Was there any kind of a pivotal moment there where you were, you had to face something about yourself that you hadn't expected? There's a interesting story where we were the beginning of what's now a smartphone. So and there was a famous article in the Wall Street Journal where it said, uh, um, mother of all markets or pipe dream driven by greed. That was the question <laughs> for this whole idea of, of a computer in your hand. Right. And, and John Scully from Apple said, mother of all markets. And Andy Grove from Intel said, pipe dream driven by greed. That was their vote. And the first round of these products that came out, the thing we built with Radio Shack and Casio, and then the first Apple shot at it were too big and clunky. Like it was, it was supposed to be a personal device. They were heavy. Their battery ran out really quickly. Give, give me the list. It was, they didn't work. And so the money in Silicon Valley is very like, they take a few signals and make a decision. So they took the signals of the failure, the first two, and decided that like this stuff's never going to work. Like this whole idea about handheld thing, now it's not going to happen. Or maybe maybe 50 years from now, but not now. So, so for us, the money, we need to raise more money to keep going like a movie. And uh, there was no money. And so the, we had to look around to say, well, how are we going to get money? And so there was this, this 
chance that we so we had been been doing networking Ericsson in Sweden there's there was a few people in every one of these companies that got it that wanted to do it so Ericsson in Sweden was interested in meeting with us to talk about building the first smartphone together it was like that wow and so I was deployed to Sweden and this is like a feel in, in one of these companies when the money starts running out you have like a clock ticking because the money's like the blood. And as it starts to run, you can feel like your body, less blood coming, less blood coming. And the more sick you look, the less likely you're going to get money because resources go to the strong. So like all that was happening. So I was deployed to Sweden to go there and say, look, if we're going to do this smartphone thing with you together, you need to invest in us. I can't, I mean, I don't think we'd had that many conversations. So I had this, P, I had this thing they were going to have to fax back to the office agreeing to invest in the company to do the smartphone. So I go to uh, Sweden. I got there and there's these signs that things are going to go well. One is in Sweden, they have these really cool hotels that are on the docks in Sweden. It's a seafaring country. And it went in the summer. So the sun's up all night long. And they have these hotels that are on docks. They're like five stories tall. They're like long and thin. And they're like these cool hotels. So I first got to my room and there was someone's tennis racket in my room. I had some like small room. So I went back to the front desk and said, you know, there's a tennis racket in my room. You know, can you give me a new one? And they were like, oh my God. Oh, oh, a tennis racket in your room. They're like, wait, wait, sir. We're so sorry. So they went away and they came and gave me this giant key. They said, here, here's your new room. And my new room was half of the top floor because they were so sorry about this tennis racket. So suddenly I had these giant windows opening out to the, you know, the, the boats. And I had this like endless set of rooms. That was my room. And then as I was walking on the street in Stockholm to go to Ericsson, people were stopping me on the street and asking for directions in Swedish. So then I got to the place and I was in a room with seven Swedish guys with an hour to get them to fax this thing. And I like something came over me and I got up to the whiteboard and I was like, this is what we're going to do. Look, everyone, basically you are here. I guess I did a really great. You are here. This is what's going on now. Look, you're going to. So for us to move forward, you have to sign this paper and I'm going to fax it back to the office. So they signed the paper. So they signed the paper agreeing to invest in Palm at some rate. I sent it back and the pictures like Donna and Jeff, like waiting around the fax machine and they get this thing. <laughs> they're like, ah. They called me up. And so, I don't know. There was nothing wrong with that trip end to end. It was magic beginning to end. And so, again, I think I was being told by the universe what I do for a living is, is that. I do that thing. So, Yeah. That's great. So, you were there a while. I can't remember. I, I, it was a few years, right? Four years. At Palm? Four yeah. years. And then you went to Adaptive Media. Is that right? Yeah, I was founding team at Palm. Jeff was the founder, and you know I joined the engineers. A guy named Devin Kalra and Mohan Krishna Mohan, and we had an idea, or they had an idea. I joined them as the business guy. We went and raised the money. We got twenty million dollars in money from Japan. We uh, we built a, a thing about media coming across the internet. I was responsible for the sales. I was responsible for the marketing. I was responsible for making the product work the way it was supposed to work. Engineering would hand it. I would. I would give it. I, I would. I would kind of turn it into the product that we're going to sell. I did a lot more hiring. 
which is at the point when you're hiring into a company that you started, the, the sense of I am taking someone's life and they're going to give it to me for an extended amount of time. Um, and I'm telling them it's the right idea. Um, and then having them there and keeping them there while still being a manager in terms of, you know, feedback, structure, this is working, this is not. I was learning to take on that responsibility and, and building, building an organization in that yeah. way. When I'm listening, I'm thinking, well, this is kind of your first real executive leadership role where you're building. And so here you are bringing these people in and you have a certain amount of responsibility for them. And then you also have a, a certain obligation to your external, you know, to your funders and your customers right. and all that. But this is really the first time you're starting to think about how do I build an organization that can deliver? So I'm just curious, right. was there, what was the internal path on that piece? If you can remember like key lessons, stumbles, successes. You know, tech companies are in the beginning, make, sell, someone makes something and then you got to sell it. And so there was hiring our first salespeople and that's a certain type of person learning about the different types, you know, operating a certain way, motivated a certain way, you know, rightly motivated on, on income and then having a lifestyle that when they, when the income comes in, spending the income, mm -hmm. which, which makes them motivated to get more and very metrics oriented, just being able to put on your pragmatic hat because selling Selling gets down pretty much to process and pragmatism. Mm -hmm. And there's a whole, there's a culture of sales. So learning about that. And then on the marketing side, bringing in some people in marketing, which is different. I was just uh, thinking, so an adaptive, what's your takeaway from the adaptive era? Both that, I know you want to describe that external takeaway. What did you learn? But also that internal journey. Yeah, it was a very tough company. Um, so more continuously tough. Um, you know, sales were hard to come by. Product was was never quite what we wanted it to be. We had to fly to Japan all the time because our we had twenty million dollars from Japanese money. But it was more kind of um, operating under pressure, continuous pressure, staying centered, and then the combination of keeping everybody in the game. What's great about this company? Because because the numbers and the situations weren't telling a great story to anyone in the building at adaptive media. And so it was like taking it and phrasing it in uh, taking situations, sales aren't that good. The product's behind. Here's still why this is a very exciting place to be. And so come in with energy because we need all your energy to do this better, that better, that better. And so um, just the, the, the turning in con consistent bad news coming in and flipping mm -hmm. it into inspiration and motivation was another kind of thing that in the startup game you have to have automatically. Also prioritization, um, low resources, bad news, things going wrong. Okay, these are the two things we're just going to do now. Yeah. So that's a lot of like personal processing. Then that needs to be expressed. You have these team meetings and everybody just saw some announcement from a competitor that's 10 times better than yours. And you might, it might have come out five minutes before you walk in front of the the team and you have to process. There's a 12 step process in a lot of things. One is processing bad news and turning it into good news as a leader or turning it into supportive news. Mm -hmm. 
And what will happen is, because it's constant, constant bad news if you're doing a startup, the speeds of metabolism around the company will be at different cycles. Right. And as a leader, you have to have gone through it first because it's like, you know, anger, fear, denial, da 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 it all comes through. Yeah. When you're done, you're centered. You've sort of, you've eaten the food and you're ready to roll. You have to be that ahead of the rest of the company. Mm. So you walk out there and you're kind of, because they're going to be going through it, especially engineers and engineers, it takes them a long time to process bad news and they, they sit on it. Um, high engineers, but you, you know, it's true. Mm. High engineers. You know, I was just thinking, Joel, that right. I mean, we're, we're having our conversation in the beginning of 2023 and, and the tech industry is kind of going through a, a bit of a contraction now. And so I think a lot of people listening might be thinking, oh yeah, boy, I'm in that. There's so much bad news. So I especially value this idea of like, how do you keep yourself a step or two ahead as the leader so that you can provide that guidance, support, challenge, whatever's needed to your team. So that seems like a really big takeaway from that era. So then you went on to Encompass yes. and Yahoo. I'm not sure what the sequencing was or, or if there was anything particular from that era. Anything come to mind? We had kind of engineers in Atlanta and then a team of salespeople in Silicon Valley. And I, I, I was in charge of that uh, side of the business. And um, we were selling, again, Tiger Team. So, you know, pretty much for my career, my experience is running Tiger Teams or f- fairly small teams under 20, 20 to 25. And so it's a lot of motivated sort of co co-runners and then if some someone's not working out you can have a personal conversation with them you can talk about it versus like bigger layers below that so that's but i had a team of maybe 20 people we're selling ads on a browser which is something people who aren't in the tech business it'll be hard to say the concepts to, to to understand the concepts but it got me into the sort of consumer internet advertising business which makes a living out of giving things away free and then selling ads to make the money. And let's see, what were the learnings? It was, it was, uh, it was a great team. We were kind of, we were under the gun. We had to discover a few breakthrough ideas for how to sell more ads on our product. And I had some very smart people with me there who had some ideas. And I think what I did there was see the good ideas and then bring them out and then, and push them. Um, sometimes you'll have smart people on your team that aren't getting share of voice because of dynamics. There's a lot of dynamics in, in this company because of their style. And so this one, scanning around and talking with everyone, I was able to recognize a particular person, they know who they are, had a really great idea about how to turn something in a certain way, which gave us a whole blast of revenue, which in the end supported us getting bought by Yahoo, which is probably our rightful place anyway. So in that one, um, it was kind of, it's your responsibility as a leader to hear when really cool stuff is coming up from your people, even though socially that might not be the obvious one, or because it's not someone else's idea, that might be an imposition on them, other people on the team. So I think that was what I feel good about, recognizing a really great person and a really great idea, which helped us kind of cross the finish line in selling to Yahoo. 
Yeah, and I think what you're what you're just if I'm going to abstract it slightly, I would say that's about amplifying voice when the uh, culture and the organization hasn't made it necessarily obvious what should be amplified for one yes, reason or another. Yes, and this culture was tough for that. Yeah, this one was tough for that. Right. So I think that's a really good, important principle. That's great. See, we're discovering your principles as we go. This was what I thought might happen is if we did the game of like job by job and, you know, you were young and knew, I mean, in fairness, we were all young when we got out of business school and we kind of knew nothing. Like we knew what we had learned in school, but we didn't really know anything practical. So charting this conversation, I'm hearing you go from, it was pretty general. I just had to like figure out what is happening in the world and who am I in this world and what can I do? And so now as you're getting into this place where you were the founder or past that point, you're looking at, ah, part of my role is to make sure other people's good ideas come through. So then you went to good, good technology. And there, I think you were also a founder there, founding team. Is that right? I founded it with Dave Wharton, Trey Vassalo, and Danny Emmett. So four of us. And it was a top, top level company in terms of funding from the best venture capitalists and the best board members you could possibly get, including Bill Campbell, who's a famous uh, board member. And um, we ended up raising over $100 million in the course of our travels, sold (laughs) it for 500. So it wasn't, it wasn't a giant hit, but it was a, it was a success. 500 million bucks was a lot of money back then when we sold it. And um, let's see, I'm just at this point, I'm feeling more solid in my shoes doing the job Mm. I do. And again, began by a bunch of general tasks of starting a company and the hiring. We had the situation with good technology where we were a very attractive company. So we got, in some sense, our pick of great people to hire who were very motivated which was a, you know, a wonderful place to be and time to be. I brought in, we bought a company that I wanted us to buy that our CEO, who's a very good friend of mine, um, and others were dead against. And I wouldn't give up to, to, the, to the extent that I would, I would bring it up and I, again, would get laughed at, but in a different way. And tried to be made embarrassed for even bringing up the idea in various situations, but I wouldn't let it go. And we finally, the purchase of that company saved us in the end. We won't go into it. Yeah. But um, it was conviction. It was conviction against basically the leadership, although eventually they came around, that uh, that something to do was the right thing to do. It turned out to be very much the right thing to do. I've had others where it wasn't. but. But I was getting more solid in my shoes and, mm-hmm. and feeling, feeling, feeling confident if I really believe in something um, that it was okay to push it, which included eventually just going, look, uh, you know, maybe I will get fired or maybe I will get ostracized. But if suddenly the lights went out and I was running this place by myself, this is absolutely what I would do. Mm-hmm. And so it finally came through. So that's. That's one of the things. So there's something in there about influencing others, influencing peers. Was there, was there a personal characteristic or a personal trait that you think helped you become influential over time, or was it more just circumstantial? I think it was similar to getting real with everybody, you know, because 
because in that we had whatever hundreds of people at that point at good technology and so even then there's some political uh, um you know currents flowing through political weather patterns mm-hmm. and so my style of where are you exact where are you coming from here's exactly where i'm coming from here's who i am and 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 except for certain types of people if you come in there and you're constantly offering up who you are taking a risk to do so it's hard to resist for the other side to offer up who they are. And then when you're in a relationship where you can sit down and it's me talking to you, I'm Joel, I'm talking to you, Sally, and I'm just saying da-da-da. So basically I picked off the building one at a time. <laughs> and so I, up to the CEO who was dead against it and, and some other high-level executive that uh, was helping, that was a Bill Campbell person. And so, and I remember in a meeting the CEO and this other person going, why, who are you, why do you keep thinking we're supposed to do this? You know, who do you think you are? Kind of. So I said, well, I'm a founder of the company and this is why. So fine. fine. So then there was this board. We finally got to a uh, executive staff meeting and Danny said, all right, but my CEO, Joel won't drop this. Let's just end it here. Okay. Executive staff, should we do this thing or not? And every single person raised their hand. And I told him, like, don't even be subtle. And so some people put two hands up. And so he said, wow, okay. Because then it was the entire team on my side. So that's yeah, this is great. It's so kind of dramatic. That, well, it's lovely. And it's something I know I've talked with uh, clients about from time to time about the importance of the meeting before the meeting. Yes. Going one yes, by yes, one yes. to build alignment, to understand concerns, to understand what's holding them back from seeing it to, you know, do all that. And then, you know, that series of meetings before the meetings that that often at an executive level is how you can build alignment. So that's a great example of that. Thank you. Yeah, so now you're yeah. at Live Ramp. You joined Live Ramp, I think, if I remember right, 2008? 2008. Um, so that's like, what and, are we at, uh, like 14 years, 13, 14, 15 years, something like that. 14 years. And uh, yes, yeah, so what if I... So I've just become more and more and more completely comfortable in my who I am, which is this authentic person whose whose art is is this pulling together arrays of people to come together with a mission and most valuably outside our building. So I've become a person whose whose art is not taking a very large team hundreds of people and moving them forward necessarily just like that's not what it is it's more our team plus these other teams and from very different buildings and very different places and cultures and pulling them together so i've been comfortable that's what i am that's what i do which makes me a lot more comfortable in the building and then when i'm doing something for the company so i, I again i started live ramp as a combination of two companies in the smaller company i was the business side of the house and then, you know, grew along, grew along. Um, but now I am Joel who does what Joel does. People say that I do Joel things. Um, and there's things they know I do and don't do. And I, I, I now look for young people that are trying to, that are, that get Silicon Valley and want to do the, because in some sense I did a version of the mythology of Silicon Valley started companies, did these things, had the, raised the money, made the commitments, had the, the, 
and so and i still love it for everything it is even you know you know whatever pluses and minuses and so when i see a young person who has that glint in their eye i love working with them and you know i can i can replay my life through them <laughs> that's how they i tell them you know this is a trade but then they get a lot from me and so there's a lot of people that have come from live ramp and started companies that i have some investments in and help them with and then there's you know, it's always something going on at live ramp it's a complicated business with complicated partnerships and so i'm in my glory here that's lovely and i know you and i've talked in the past about that sort of personal development side and the journey that you've been on to learn more about yourself and how you want to be in the world as a human being so i'm wondering if you could just like share a, a little bit um, with the listeners about what have you learned about yourself and how has that made you a better leader? Okay. Um, so, so I've learned that I will, you know, early on, I will not walk away. I will not give up. I will finish the job I start no matter how horrible it becomes. <laughs> and it becomes horrible. Any startup you do becomes horrible. So just plan for that. So I've learned that. And then I've learned a superpower for me is the authenticity, being comfortable with some people like say, let's call it a game. Some people feel more comfortable if they've carefully placed chips on the table and are holding cards back. And so they want to be careful and, you, and putting it all in positives. It's with care. It's with a purpose. It's with an intention, a revealing, a use of thing. I I'm the opposite. My world is everything on the table. And, and the more that's on the table, I, I play well there. And so I've learned to quickly get that situation with people I'm working with through like just a lot of disclosure, a lot of narrative, a lot of where they go, okay, I guess that's what I'm supposed to do too. <laughs> and so that I do that. And then I've, I've learned about myself. Well, I was a physics major, so no concepts scare me. I'm not going to be afraid by anything on the whiteboard or how anything works. And so I flipped over time to my journey being participating, participating in this world of me and other people all in some place trying to head somewhere. And that when things happen for my people that are good, it's good for me because I am my network. I've sort of flipped to a couple of buzzwords, but really feeling that everyone that I meet with, if they leave energized or positive or a little, you know, hop in their step, that's it. That's what I do. And it then helps me have more fun as I'm trying to organize people to move into some type of concept they didn't have, some type of agreement of a mission or a direction that they didn't have. Mm. getting them all to see it and move forward in it. And they know I authentically think this is good. This is exciting and positive for everyone. You know. So if you were to flip that around, it is a great life. And I, I think lots of listeners would like to know, like, what's your tip for how to have that life? What's your leadership tip? So if we've got people listening and they're like, this all sounds great, what Joel described, but I don't even have the slightest idea how to do this. What, what would you offer? Okay, so in the fog of war, which it will be early in your career, it's, oh, what, what should I do? What shouldn't I do? Was that a good meeting? Did I say the wrong thing? How am, I doing, how am I doing in my career? In that fog of war, 
A, there's a tons of things you can go to the websites about how to do better in a meeting. There's a lot of good stuff. So, so definitely read that. But believe that inside you, there's tons of unlocked capability that has to do with stopping blocking yourself. There's a lot of fear down there, however it gets expressed. And if, by the way, you're not going to like go to one seminar over the weekend and figure it all out. It's endless. Thank God it's endless. But you can spend time internally finding out what you are, creating courage in yourself, uh, opening things, finding out that, that self-discovery. Hell yes, it's going to pay off along with all the other stuff you have to do. Yeah, you have to do the external stuff. You can't run. You have to stay in it. You have to stay up late, ah, handle all that stuff. The great news is inside all of us, there's amazing power there to unlock. So it's worth it to go in there and learn about yourself. And also trust what you are. If you are something, but you had thought maybe you should be something else, really think about that. Because that thing that you are done right is a gift. Are you mm -hmm. a great engineer? Are you great at this or that? Um, and so be okay with that. For me, my art, I had to realize my art is this thing I do. It's not necessarily running large organizations. So I got out of the way for those people to do that job. That's great. That is lovely. And I'm going to ask you my favorite kind of wrap up question here, which is, so the title of this podcast is to lead as human. And I just wonder, what does that mean to you to lead as a human being? How, how might you have embraced your own humanity? Maybe? I don't know. Um, yeah. And I think the world's kind of coming in our direction, certainly in tech, is it's okay to find out what you are and be it. And it's okay to express what you are. Maybe in the 1950s, when it was the man in the gray flannel suit, you know, it's sort of the pendulum was over there. But more and more, it's, it's, and you can feel the momentum coming. There's power in unlocking who you are, which is a human being, and people will respond to it. So don't, worry that that's not a powerful lever. It is a powerful lever to be more and more and more who you are as you discover who you are. People will respond to it. I just can't think of a better place to end. Thank you so much. So I just want to thank you, Joel, for coming on to this episode of To Lead as Human. I'm sure, Joel, that people might want to find out a little more about you. And where can they learn more about you? Uh, on LinkedIn is a great place. It's J-O-E-L. J-E-W-I-T-T. -T. I think I'm the only Joel Jewett on LinkedIn. And if someone can find, I'm pretty sure that's the case. It's really been a joy. I just, I love it. And I look forward to our next conversation. I have a very specific conversation I'm looking forward to having with you the next time we get together. So thanks so much. And we'll uh, be in touch real soon. Stay with us for another few minutes as I suggest some next steps you might take on your own leadership journey. Hi, this is Sharon. I'm popping in just before the takeaways to remind you that as an executive coach, I'm always looking to support new clients. If you or someone you know might be looking for an executive coach, head over to my website, leadinglarge.com, and you can book a complimentary appointment with me. In the first 25 minutes, we'll be able to identify a challenge you're facing and talk about whether I'm the right fit to work with you. I look forward to hearing from you.
hope you enjoyed the conversation with Joel as much as I did. There are a few key things he mentioned I just want to highlight for you for your reflection. The first one is, it's so important to know where you are, who you are, who you're with, and what you're doing in any given meeting. So maybe you'd like to use his you are here approach to make sure that you are present and aware when you step into a meeting. Joel talked through a number of his leadership principles, and they evolved over his journey. And I think for all leaders, it's very important for us to figure out what is our superpower. Another principle that Joel lives by is put your cards on the table. What he points out is if you take the risk to be open with the person you're talking to, it's harder and harder for them to not join you in being transparent on their own side. And that's part of what he's learned about how to be an excellent business developer over his long career. The last thing I'll mention is Joel's very poignant point that it's incredibly important to be yourself and be human and to not try to be anything other than that. That the better you know yourself, the more you share yourself with others, that you then have all the levers you need to build strong relationships and for people to respond to you as the person that you are, rather than the role that you might be sitting in. So one practice I like to recommend to leaders who are first exploring this idea of authentic leadership is definitely figure out who you are and what feels authentic to you and also have a tool in your mind in case you're not quite ready to have that authenticity on full display. Here's the way you think about it. Imagine you have a leadership cloak and when you step into your role, you put that cloak on. Inside, you are your own authentic self 100% of the time. And you can decide then how much of who you are are you able to share in this first situation, in the next situation, and so forth. As you get more and more comfortable, and as you get feedback from others, that when you share more, they do too, I believe your comfort zone will grow and you'll have the opportunity to enjoy what Joel has discovered, which is being fully himself is what it is that makes people want to work with him. I'm Sharon Richmond, and this has been To Lead as Human. You can find out more about me at leadinglarge.com. That's L-E-A-D-I-N-G large.com. To Lead as Human is part of the Miracy FM podcast network, which also includes such shows as Soul Savvy Business and Making It. This episode was produced by the fabulous Cynthia Lamb. Jeff Govertson assembled the episode. Danny Eaney is our executive producer and post-production was provided by Post Office Sound. So you don't miss upcoming episodes, please follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now. And if you like the show, please leave us a starred review and tell your colleagues about us. It really does help us spread the word. Thank you so much for listening and we'll see you next time on To Lead is Human. Miracy. I'm Molly Mahoney. I'm Danny Eaney. I'm Virginia Mooskies. I'm Melinda Cohen. I'm Dave Lacani. I'm Michael Port, and you're listening to Making, Making It. it.
You would think that when you hit the New York Times list or the Wall Street Journal bestseller list, you would feel like you made it. For me, it never has. I think making it can mean whatever you want it to mean for you. Making it is about having time to spend as I want to spend it. Making it really is about being free to live according to your own genuine values and priorities. It's about acceptance. Not only like making money, but make a difference. Make a contribution. contribution. Like feeling like I'm making a difference to someone. And I don't think making it is a one and done. I think it's an ebb and flow spiral type of pattern. Making it to me really means being able to bring your whole self to the table. It's really a choice that you make every day. Because the truth is that you do not really know what you're doing until you get started doing it. I'd say that the first seven, maybe eight years was like pushing a boulder up the hill. If there's anything that I could say to my younger self, I would say, really? Like, for real, for real? Trust. I would tell myself no shortcuts. No shortcuts. The path is always in front of you, even if it's not clear. The key is to keep moving forward. Everything requires work and effort, no matter how much you love it. You've got to find something that you love, something that you enjoy, so that your work is not a labor, it's not a chore. Don't compare yourself to others. But recognize that if you see someone else doing something that is of interest to you, you can do it also. I had this sensation of, I kind of felt like the walls were shaking and I just felt like, that's what I've been doing all this time. That's who I am. In that moment, I knew who they were, I knew the burdens and distractions, and I knew full potential. And then I ended up ultimately in the ultimate Frisbee Hall of Fame as a Johnny Appleseed for taking the sport out to the world. And so I just said to myself, you have to give this a try. If you don't give it a try, you'll spend the rest of your life wondering if you could have done it. The water is always changing, and your comfort with that doesn't come from knowing that there is no uncertainty coming. It comes from trusting in your competence to handle that. I like to say, don't emulate, elevate. That's how you're going to make it. Making It is a weekly podcast brought to you by our team at Miracy. New episodes are available on Spotify, Apple Music, and most anywhere else podcasts are found.